Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. Frankly, I'm a little bit fed up right now. I'm fed up with the political discourse in this country. It seems like any time there's any kind of a political debate, people want to bring up, well, how would the Founding Fathers have felt about this? Here's the thing about the Founding Fathers. If those guys were so fucking great, why didn't they get off their goddamn asses seven years earlier and start the American Revolution then? If they had, I could be rooting for a basketball team called the Philadelphia 69ers. But no. They had to wait until 1776. <sighs> anyway, I'm sorry, I'll climb off of my soapbox now. Just pisses me off is all. Let's just talk about a comic book or something. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Neil Butler. And I apologize in advance, but I am going to half-ass this. Long ago, back in the 80s, I read a comic book featuring Bethany Snow. Perez's art, it was so crisp and clear. Baby, the inks were by Tangal, Romeo. Don't you remember you said you'd summarize this comic book? Said you'd be doing a podcast about this comic book. Comic book, comic book, comic book, comic book, oh, comic book. I synopsize you. I really do. Thanks, Neil. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 40, February 1988. Round Holes and Square Pegs. Written by Marv Wolfman. Drotted by Eduardo Barreto, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by Albert de Guzman, colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Barbara Randall. Teen Titan Roll Call Starfire, Raven, Nightwing, Cyborg, Jericho, Wonder Girl, Beast Boy, and Danny Chase. Previously in the New Teen Titans, a titular team had been transitioning out of teenagedom, so the writers decided to bring in a new member to help lower the group's median age back into the desired demographic. This new recruit was a red-haired, bespectacled 14-year-old named Danny Chase. Danny was a precocious young international secret agent with powerful telekinetic abilities. When his parents, who were also secret agents, had been kidnapped by a supervillain, the Titans joined up with Danny to help rescue them, which was nice. Danny decided he'd rather not work for a government which had abandoned his parents in their hour of need, so he quit his spy job and accepted a position with the Titans. Gadzooks! Will this late-season introduction of a new younger character pay the same dividends for the Titans that it did for different strokes? Or the Brady Bunch? Or the Partridge Family? Or Happy Days? Or Scooby-Doo? Or Growing Pains? 
or Who's the Boss, or Married with Children, or Family Matters, or Good Times? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so no comment, 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 and come on, Danny is no Janet Jackson. Late one night, a security guard named Archie is watching the monitors of the Heatherstrom mansion when a mysterious fog melts its way into a secret vault and steals a bunch of money. Archie calls the cops. Across town, at his palatial estate, the third richest, and therefore presumably third most trustworthy, man in America, Theodore Ford, sits in an easy chair and reads a book. As he sits, the elderly billionaire reflects on his life. When he was younger, he moved from Chicago to Kentucky, changed his name from Abner Gilly, ran errands for Al Capone, and then started cleaning toilets at a publishing house. Somehow, all this led him to be a multi-billionaire. Damn. Those must have been some filthy toilets if the pay was that good. The former Mr. Gilly reflects on his Horatio Alger-like story for a minute. Then an old-timey pistol hovers in the air in front of him and shoots him through the heart. A few minutes later, Ford's butler comes into the room with a snifter of brandy and finds his employer dead. A peal of ghostly laughter is heard throughout the halls of the mansion. So I guess this means Steve Dayton is now the fourth richest, and therefore most trustworthy, man in America. Well, good for him. That same evening, TV star Johnny Griffin is hanging out in his fancy house, watching tapes of his show and thinking about how good he is at being a TV star when an unseen intruder busts in and steals all his gold and silver. The next day, the police call the Titans and ask them to help investigate the three crimes. Witnesses reported that two of them involved smoke and two of them involved loud noises, so Nightwing figures the crimes must be connected in some way. Good call, Dick. I mean, what are the odds of three crimes taking place in New York on the same night? Seems a little suspicious. Soon after Dick finishes voicing his assumption that the three incidents are related, the cops get word that three museums around the city are all being robbed. Danny suggests that the Titans split into three groups so that they can try to stop all the crooks at once. Beast Boy is like, No way, Danny. That's a terrible plan. You never split the party. I guess Nightwing doesn't play as much D&D as Gar does, because he's like, I think Danny's plan is great. We should all do what Danny says. He's the future of this franchise. Much to Beast Boy's consternation, the rest of the team agrees with Dick. Nightwing and his new best pal, Danny Chase, head to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where they find that an intermittently ethereal infiltrator is in the process of stealing a bunch of famous paintings. The would-be art appropriator is a supervillain named The Silver Fog. Mel Torme? No, that's the Velvet Fog. The Silver Fog turns out to be a crook in a silver bodysuit and Dracula cape who can turn intangible and shoot alternately concussive and corrosive blasts of fog. Also, he's an asshole. Dick and Danny attempt to apprehend the fog, but the occasionally incorporeal Crumbum proves to be surprisingly elusive. He attacks the junior member of the duo, but Dick flips into the path of the ferocious fog blast and bears the brunt of the blow. Danny's not too stoked about that. Quicker than you can say, Puppy Power! 
the telekinetic teen launches an all-out assault on his fog-flinging foe. Now I know what you're asking yourself. Does Danny make a bunch of references to 1930s cinema as he goes on the offensive? Of course he does. He's a hip young teen in the late 80s. Daunted by his young adversary's telekinetic prowess and knowledge of Spencer Tracy's filmography, the Silver Fog is forced to flee the museum empty-handed. After Dick recovers, he and Danny do a little research. The Silver Fog had seemed kind of familiar to the Elder Titan. A quick perusal of the NYPD's crime computers reveals that a little while ago, a scientist named Sam Toth had gone by that name and had stolen a bunch of science equipment to cure himself from a condition which had turned him involuntarily intangible. As soon as he was cured, he turned himself in and made reparations to the parties he had stolen from. Dick and Danny decide to pay Mr. Toth a visit and see if he had suffered from a bout of recidivism. Turns out, Sam is still on the straight and narrow but he informs his young interrogators that his former lab assistant, Edward Arling, had always seemed like kind of an asshole, and had been pretty interested in his mentor's research. Toth reckons that if anyone's taken up his somewhat obscure mantle, it's probably Eddie. Dick figures that sounds pretty plausible. After all, this new silver fog did seem like kind of an asshole. Meanwhile, at the Museum of Natural History, Wonder Girl, Beast Boy, and Cyborg burst onto the scene to find that the place is being robbed by the Gentleman Ghost. The Gentleman Ghost is Jim Craddock, an invisible old-timey British guy who dresses like a dandified fop and likes to steal shit. Also, he's a ghost. Beast Boy mentions that the Titans tangled with him once back in the day, which I have no recollection of, but it sounds plausible enough. The gang chases him around for a while, but Jimmy's pretty hard to pin down. You know, on account of he's a ghost. The spectral supervillain drops a life-size model of a whale on Beast Boy, then shatters some glass display cases which shower Donna and Vic with shards of glass and allow the deceased Dandy to make his escape. The good news is, he had to run off before he got the chance to steal any... I don't know, fossils, I guess? I mean, it's possible he just needed a place to crash and decided to basally Frankweiler it up. But the important thing is, thanks to the Titans, he didn't steal anything. He just caused lots of damage to a bunch of irreplaceable artifacts. Hooray? While their teammates are trying their best to apprehend a dead British guy, Starfire, Jericho, and Raven are across town at the New York City Museum of Science and Technology, which I don't think is a real place, but I guess there wasn't a third museum in New York for them to set an adventure in, so what are you gonna do? Anyway, the high-tech villain Ira Quimby, or IQ for short, is zooming around on his rocket boots, blasting the trio of titans with his laser guns, and basically making a nuisance of himself. What is he there to steal? Who knows? Maybe he had a hankering for that incredibly disappointing freeze-dried astronaut ice cream and decided to raid the gift shop. The point is, he's pretty much kicking the Titans' asses. Jericho tries to use his creepy powers to take over the Titan-trouncing technocrat, but Ira has prepared for this eventuality and is wearing some Joey-proof sunglasses. The possession-proof plunderer zaps Joey with a ray gun, then he uses a fancy gizmo to siphon off Starfire's solar power, which leaves the Tamaranian princess nearly comatose. Raven tries to use her magic nonsense powers on the science-savvy scumbag, 
But Quimby interrupts the avian-themed empath by blasting her with a sonic disruptor, which scrambles the embattled Azerathian's brain for a second. Apparently deciding that stealing some disappointing desiccated dessert is more trouble than it's worth, IQ flees the scene empty-handed. A still sleepy Starfire moves to minister to Joey's wounds. As she does so, Joey thinks to himself, Hey, both me and Starfire have creepy green eyes. Neat. I think I'll start having a crush on her. After a few seconds, Raven recovers from the effects of the sonic disruptor and heals up her pals. As she does, she thinks to herself, Oh, that's weird. For a second there, it seemed like Joey was crushing on Starfire. But that can't be right. Wolfman just resolved an aborted love triangle plotline where I was crushing on Nightwing. He wouldn't go back to that well so soon. Wouldn't he, Raven? Wouldn't he? Later that afternoon, the Titans gather in their T-shaped skyscraper to compare notes. They can't figure out why the three disparate criminals are working together, or where they're going to strike next. Between bites of a weird-looking sandwich, Danny Chase is like, Maybe we could set a trap for the crooks to lure them out into the open. I used to do that all the time back when I was an international super spy. Beast Boy is like, that's a terrible plan. It doesn't make any sense. If we set the trap, then how are we going to heedlessly walk into it? Danny is like, no, we don't walk into our trap. The criminals do. Dick is like, a trap that we don't walk into heedlessly? Why? It's so crazy it just might work. Three cheers for Danny Chase, the cleverest audience surrogate, I mean Titan, of all. The next day, the Titans have an article planted in the paper that a priceless diamond chalice will be on display in the New York Coliseum. Huh. The New York Coliseum's a convention center, which seems like an odd place to have an exhibit like that, but... I guess since, as we have established, there are only two actual museums in New York City, their options were limited. That night, the Titans perch in the balcony of the exhibit hall overlooking the Diamond Chalice's display case and wait for the crooks to show up. Danny forgot to bring any more weird sandwiches with him to the stakeout, but that's okay, because our heroes don't have to wait for very long. All three crooks show up at more or less the same time, the Titans watch patiently as the trio of supervillains beat up the armed guards surrounding the chalice, who I guess the gang forgot to let in on their plan. Then the Titans turn on each other. Remember back at the beginning of the issue, when Dick made the arbitrary supposition that the three criminals must be working together? Well, it turns out, nope, they aren't. The three of them just happened to rob similar victims on the same night. Most of the Titans are shocked at this revelation, but Dick is like, I knew it. Did you, buddy? Did you really? The gang is about to bust in on the feuding super burglars and round them up, but Danny's like, why don't we just let them beat the shit out of each other and then wade in at the end when they're all pooped out? Everyone except Beast Boy agrees that this seems like a brilliant plan. The gang kicks up their feet and watches as a do-batter Donnybrook erupts on the floor below them. After a few minutes of skirmishing, the Silver Fog is like, You know what? Fuck this. I may be an unscrupulous scientist who avoids government agencies and pursued a lucrative career in the private sector, but despite that, I'm not a Ghostbuster. This dead British dude is freaking me the fuck out. Bye. And with that, the monochrome malfeasant vamooses.
by the Silver Fog. See you later. Except we won't. This is his only appearance until he has a cameo in an issue of Impulse about a decade from now. Once the Silver Fog has fucked off more or less forever, the Gentleman Ghost beats up IQ and is about to skedaddle with the fancy cup. The Titans decide that this is as good a time as any to make their presence known. They confront the Gentleman Ghost and demand that he surrender. Jimmy isn't in a surrendering mood, so he just drops his ill-gotten goblet and teleports away, which is, I guess, a thing he can do. Wonder Girl is like, let's go look for him. But Nightwing is like, nah, fuck it. This is just a fake goblet we made out of paper mache anyway. We got one of these guys, that's good enough. Let's drop IQ here off at the police station and then go back to the tower. We can eat pizza, rent some movies, and talk about how much we all love Danny Chase and what a great new addition to the team he is. Three cheers for Danny Chase! The end. So I guess they're all cool with letting the one criminal who actually murdered someone go? Yeah? Okay. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going all right. It's Friday. That's nice. That is nice. How are you going? I'm doing okay. It's also Friday where I am. So, I got that going for me. Uh-huh. Uh, let's see. Anything interesting? Nope. You want to talk about a comic book? <laughs> sure, let's do it. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? Hmm, it was okay. I was mildly amused by the sitcom kind of Beast Boy and Danny Chase back and forth. I was confused, I guess, by... The ending, where normally I feel like they try and put a little more of a bow on things. It was odd to me that it was, well, we did 30% of what we were setting out to do, so let's call it a win and go home. The end. Yeah, it was unusually... I feel like Dick is normally... We are used to him being like really hard on himself and kind of a perfectionist and like, oh, it's not good enough for Batman, you know? Mm -hmm. And this one, he was just like, yeah, fuck it, good enough. I wonder to what extent maybe that is just him rebelling against having Batman for a dad now that he finds himself in a mentorship role over a younger teen. If he's just like, well, I'm never going to be like Batman was. That sucked. Uh, you know what? I think you did the best job, Danny. You are so good at crime fighting. If your parents ever die in a circus accident, you can wear long pants and you can have ice cream for dinner. Yeah, let's go watch some VHS tapes and drink some free sodas. Well, I don't, we don't know where they're going to get their sodas from. They're getting pizza. I think he was leaving sodas purposefully off the itinerary in hopes that Wonder Girl would chime in. But uh, good luck. Now that she's married and supporting an unemployed Terry Long, I don't think she has soda money to kick around anymore. No, no, she hasn't brought up free sodas in a long time. I know. Cyborg's been having to scam them off of uh, unsuspecting barbecue goers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sad empaths. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Don't come back until you brought the soda. 
So, how do you feel about Danny Chase? You're still generally favorable about him? Hmm. How do you feel like he's fitting in with the team and the book? I feel like I get why they're doing it and why they did it. I don't know why I was so... <laughs> like, why I thought it was such a good idea last yeah. time. It's kind of like, I want my old dynamic back. Yeah. Now I, now I have two characters that I don't like so much. It is weird. It is like Marv Wolfman has, like, one setting for, here's how I write a cool, relatable, younger teen. So far, he hasn't made Danny super sexual harassy yet, mm -mm. which is nice. Mm -hmm. I'm certainly in favor of that. But other than that, he really has a very Beast Boy-esque personality. Mm -hmm. He's sassy and wisecracking and irreverent and constantly making references to 1930s movies. You know, like a 14-year-old. Yeah, that's how kids talk. Right. They love Abbott and Costello. Mm -hmm. They appear to be super full of themselves as probably a smokescreen for feeling pretty insecure. Mm -hmm. It's a technique that didn't really work, I, I don't think, the first time around with the Ur-Beast Boy. And so younger, non-green knockoff Beast Boy isn't really working for me. That being said, I, maybe I'm getting more inoculated to him. It didn't bother me as much this time. I think partly just because, like his first appearance, this is a different kind of story that feels kind of set apart from the other Teen Titans stories that we've read. It's self-contained, obviously, but it also seems like a throwback to, like, 1960s Silver Age comics. And I think that's intentional. So maybe it makes sense to me more that it is written for younger audiences because comics in the Silver Age were generally written for a younger audience, so it doesn't seem as pandery that it's trying to be written to a younger audience by including Danny. You know? Yeah, I mean, maybe a little charitable, but I definitely see that in contrast to the annual where they introduced him. But what was weird to me is because it did seem to me that, yeah, we're trying to appeal to a younger audience, but we're also trying to get the teenagers that are interested in some hanky-panky and you know, that sort of drama going on, because now we have Joey maybe crushing on Starfire. Ugh, that was so annoying to me. And I hope they just fucking forget about it. I feel like Wolfman was like, I started to go this direction with Raven, and then I changed my mind and wrote, I think, a really beautiful issue working around that and why we don't need to have this love triangle. And then the very next issue, he's like, but you know what? Let's do this with Jericho. It also seems like, I don't know, and maybe this is me reading too much into it, but I had read that when they initially introduced Jericho, it had been Wolfman and Perez's intent to make him an openly gay character, and then they decided against that, and now it seems like maybe they're trying to overcorrect. Oh, weird. Because in the last issue, they were like, oh, and see, no, he's got this girlfriend and it's serious. And then in this issue, there's just no mention of her again. And she never comes up. She never appears again. But it's like, well, we don't want to have her. So uh, I don't know. How can we underline that he's not gay? I guess he's crushing on Starfire because they both have green eyes. Yeah, that was a, a funny one where like, because I still want to kind of like the character. He's been one that I haven't really had issues with other than his power being super creepy. 
Mm-hmm. I do like that. That was his his like, oh my gosh, I never realized how attractive this person is because we have the same color eyes. Mm-hmm. And they're both weird in different ways. Yeah, I'm like a hypnotizing lemur. <laughs> and she's kind of like, I don't know, a mannequin? Yeah, she's got some marbles in there. We're like a match made in heaven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really wasn't crazy about that kind of a plot twist. I think it's unnecessary. Fortunately, I guess, I wouldn't be that surprised if they just decided to forget about it next issue. But yeah, when I got to that part, I was like, fucking seriously, you just tried this and it didn't work. Are you just going to go through every character's like, all right, well, I want to make a love triangle, damn it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're just going to keep throwing that spaghetti at the wall. Yeah, somebody needs to tell him you got to take the spaghetti out of the box and cook it first, though. Because I feel like he's just bouncing the same box repeatedly off the linoleum. In this scenario, his walls are made out of linoleum. Mm-hmm. What else? They made Danny Chase eat a carrot sandwich? Yeah, I wanted to talk about that sandwich because... <laughs> To me, it looked like he stuffed a bunch of slices of pepperoni between two cookies. <laughs> that kid might be onto something. It sounds gross, but it might be one of those things that's good. No, Corey. I will go very far with you in this culinary experimentation, but do not stuff a bunch of pieces of pepperoni between two cookies. I don't care how high you get. If, if nothing else, it's a good practical joke. How is it a practical joke? Like, because <laughs> what would you think would be in there? You see two cookies with a bunch of pepperoni between them. What do you think it is? Well, no, you just be like, hey, hub, here's a double decker cookie. And you're like, oh, man, that sounds good. <laughs> hey, what the hell, Corey? <laughs> that is a very difficult prank, too. You'd probably have to bake them that way. And that's just too much. That's a waste. Yeah. It's a prank that's on par with, uh, at one point, many, many years ago, when I was doing sketch comedy, I wrote a sketch about a very incompetent James Bond villain, and his evil death trap was just having a giant Bowie knife sitting in a martini glass. <laughs> it's that level of prank. Yeah. I guess I'm <laughs> a little bit of an incompetent Bond villain. Oh, I'm I'm sorry, Corey. I think that if you applied yourself, you could be a very good James Bond villain. <laughs> this laser's gonna slice your penis right off. <laughs> I'm sure it will. That's a James Bond villain thing, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, a laser penis slicer. Yeah, okay. That was the main thing. It's been a while since I've seen one of those movies. <laughs> that is not a good practical joke. <laughs> it's a terrible practical joke. <laughs> uh, I guess we should talk about this comic some more. <laughs> I guess. So in the opening pages of the book, there's a little caption that reads, dedicated to Gardner Fox, who did most of it first. And I think that's actually a pretty safe assumption, given how prolific Gardner Fox was. Is his a name that you're familiar with? No, it is not. Gardner Fox, as I mentioned earlier, was incredibly prolific. And that is putting it mildly. He was a comic book writer. He also wrote novels and short stories and just basically everything. He wrote 156 different novels. I've read a couple of them. And really, across all genres, he had like a couple dozen different pen names that he used because he wrote in really every genre. I've read 
two of his science fiction books, and they were pretty good. But he also wrote westerns and fantasy and romance and historical fiction. And in the 70s, he had two different series that were smutty female-led parodies of James Bond. Those ones were called, let's see, I think I wrote those ones down, Cherry Delight and The Lady from L-U-S-T. And I think each of those had at least three or four books in them. Oh, jeez. One of which was called The Hot Mahatma. (laughs) But in addition to writing like a billion fucking books, between 1937 and the time he died in 1985, he wrote, I think it's over 4,000 comic stories. Good Lord. Yeah, 1,500 of those were for DC. What's even more impressive is, at the time he started writing professionally, he was a lawyer. What? Yeah, he was a fascinating guy. And for DC, he created the original Flash, the guy with the walk on his head. Mm -hmm. Hawkman, the Silver Age Adam. He wrote the first 65 issues of the Justice League. There were like a couple of fill-in issues in there, but... He was the primary writer for the first 65 issues. And this issue is very much structured as a tribute to him. It it follows a similar format to the way he would do most of his Justice League stories, where you have a big team, and then you'll have a bunch of different tasks that they will have to split up to do, and then they'll come together at the end. That's mm-hmm. kind of the formula for a Gardner Fox-style Justice League story. And interestingly enough, when J.M. DeMattis took over The Defenders, the first story that he did was done as a tribute to Gardner Fox, too. The one where the pieces of eternity are missing, and the Defenders had to break up into teams and do that. So he had a huge influence on the industry, and at the time this book came out, he had passed on a little bit over a year before this came out. So I think this was written as a tribute to him. And I thought it was pretty fun in that regard. and. It definitely had the feel and kind of the low stakes nature of a Silver Age comic book, I felt like. Mm -hmm. What is kind of weird is the three villains that they chose, two of them are very closely associated with Gardner Fox. He created IQ and he didn't create the Gentleman Ghost, but he wrote a lot of Gentleman Ghost stories when he was writing Hawkman in the Silver Age. And then they threw in the Silver Fog, and I'm not entirely sure why. The Silver Fog has one previous appearance under his belt in the early 80s. It was written by Marv Wolfman. It just seems like a weird one to throw in. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they wanted to have a ghost fight. So have a ghost fight somebody else who's intangible, Mm -hmm. and then also IQs there. It's just either way you get a one-odd-man-out type situation there. Yep. I enjoyed all the the bad guys in this, especially Gentleman Ghost and IQ. Yeah, I did too. I thought that they were great. Silver Fog, eh, didn't really do too much for me. Although, what is going on with that guy's drawers, man? I know we'll get to that, but (laughs) as the weirdest pair of undies I have ever seen. It does not seem particularly functional, I will grant you that. So yeah, of the villains, the Gentleman Ghost was the one who tickled your fancy bone the hardest. I would say so. Yeah, he uh, kind of reminded me a little bit, and maybe it was just the getup he was wearing of the, the Artful Dodger character from the Flaming Carrot books. 
I can see that connection. It's odd because uh, he reminded me more of a different Artful Dodger than the one from the Flame and Carrot comics. He reminded me more of the Artful Dodger from Dickens. And I guess not necessarily the Artful Dodger, but he definitely has kind of like a Dickensian vibe to him. He's wearing a nice cravat. This issue did cause me to do a lot more of our typical uh, ascot versus cravat research. <laughs> so the one he's wearing is, is a cravat? Yeah, so according to this one webpage I found, uh, ascot is a cravat, but a cravat is not an ascot because a cravat is any kind of neck covering. Okay, we are going to have to come up with a mnemonic device for that because we have had people do a bunch of research and tell us a lot about ascots and cravats. And I come out of them thinking, oh, that's so interesting. And then go immediately back to not remembering which one is which. Mm. It's the culottes debacle all over again. But yes, I like the Gentleman Ghost attire a lot. I also like his backstory a lot. He is a ghost from olden times. His name is Gentleman Jim Craddock. He was a highwayman. Although as far as I know, he was never in the band with Chris Christopherson and Willie Nelson. Although there is a lot about the DC Universe intricacies that I do not know. And he would rob generally from the aristocracy, but almost always made it a point to act as though he were himself a member of the nobility because his father was a nobleman who then abandoned his family when he was an infant. So he was forced to adopt a life of crime to provide for his mother. And then he came to America and was murdered in the Old West. And he was cursed to walk the earth as a ghost until the person who killed him died. The only problem was the person who killed him who was coincidentally nicknamed Nighthawk, <laughs> was even more coincidentally the reincarnation of Hawkman. Hawkman is a character who is constantly getting reincarnated all the time. And because he keeps getting reincarnated, he's never really dead. So oh. the gentleman ghost is a ghost forever. There's the rub. Mm -hmm. You know what else also cool about him is when a swordfish hits him in the chest it makes the noise thang <laughs> <laughs> i agree i think that is pretty neat my favorite thing about him still is probably just a levitating monocle mm -hmm. it's just a neat look i like the fact that you know he's a ghost he would be a lot more effective if he just didn't dress like a 19th century fop but he does because he likes it like, if he just wasn't wearing clothes, he could steal everything so much easier. Also, I don't know why he's stealing things. He's probably bored, you know? He's been a ghost for a long time, and I don't know. I could see myself being like, well, I'm a ghost. I can sneak into places. Okay, but here's the thing. If you grew up in the 1800s, right? You gotta just be used to being bored shitless all the time. <laughs> Like, they don't have TV, like, I guess they, they, they had books, he could read maybe, but like, he probably didn't get much of a chance to. We were talking about this, I, we both had pretty strong reactions to our second COVID vaccine shots, mm -hmm. and one of the most frustrating things was, I was just really fuzzy-headed, and I couldn't concentrate enough to read or watch TV or even fuck around on my phone, so I was just super bored. He's got to be so used to just being bored shitless all the time. 
Like, I think your number one entertainment back then was just, I don't know, shitty plays and fire. Mm -hmm. And so he's in the 80s. Go watch Predator, man. Why you got to rob people? Oh, well, I mean, he's a ghost, so he probably doesn't have to sleep and stuff. I'm sure he's watching Predator and doing other stuff. I guess. I just feel like that's probably more interesting than trying to rob the Natural History Museum. Also, what the fuck are you going to steal in the Natural History Museum? Yeah, I, I had uh, similar qualms about their, their venues, but I gotta say, I, I loved the setting. That like This is all kind of museum fuckery mm -hmm. <laughs> going on. It was, it was pretty fun to see that. Oh, it's a natural progression. First, you rob mansions, mm -hmm. and then you go to museums, where the stuff is technically more valuable, but almost impossible to resell. Mm -hmm. Seemed like odd choices on most of their parts, with the exception of IQ, who, I guess you want to go to the Museum of Industry and Technology, because maybe they have, like, a space shuttle part that you can adapt to make better flying boots or something, you know? Yeah, maybe, I don't know, but I'm not sure about that. I mean, let's see. Boston Museum of Science, that's a good one. Yeah. They got that uh that thing that you can put your hands on that makes your hair hair stand up. Yeah, they they got one of those. They got yeah, the Tesla coils. They mm -hmm. got those. They got this thing where if you put a penny then you in it, then you hear a dinosaur roar. Mm -hmm. That's pretty good. I can see why you'd want to steal one of those. Mm -hmm. Once you got that thing, it's like a turnkey business. All those pennies are gonna be yours now. Let's see, Oregon Museum of Science and Industry. They had that Body Worlds exhibit. That creeped me the fuck out, man. I wanted to go. I didn't get to go. But uh, I, I don't see how that's going to help Ira Quimby <laughs> do any crimes. Well, I mean, I guess it depends what the touring exhibit is. They had that Tony Hawk exhibit a little while ago. He could probably get a solar skateboard and use that to crime it up, you know? That's how Tony Hawk flies so high. A solar skateboard, I had no idea. <laughs> well, and here's the thing about Ira Quimby. In a lot of ways, he is the DC Universe's equivalent of Ben Carson, the smartest moron in the world. <laughs> <laughs> because that is kind of his backstory. He's technically a genius. I mean, in this case, it's inventing, not brain surgery. But he's also a fucking moron. His name's Ira Quimby. He was always a small-time crook. And everybody called him IQ because his initials were I and Q. Mm -hmm. But mostly because he was such a fucking dumbass that they thought it was funny no. to call him IQ. They would, like, be planning a crime, and he would have an outlandish idea that didn't make any goddamn sense and then would just propose that as a solution. And I think we've probably both been in meetings with somebody like that, where it's like, yeah, I guess if our trucks could fly, that would solve a problem. Anyway, mm -hmm. that is literally something that he proposes uh, when we are first introduced to the character. But then he ends up finding a meteorite and he licks it or something, and it makes him super smart for real. And then all of his dumbass ideas, he's like, and here's how we can make a truck fly. Uh, but he's still fundamentally kind of an idiot. Well, those pants, why? I mean, I know we'll get to it in the closing bit, but 
at first I was like, man, he's got really weird. I don't know what those muscles would be, like hip flexor muscles, like the outside of his legs, mm-hmm. are ridiculous. But it's because then I realized they're supposed to be, I guess, like those riding pants that kind of puff up around your thighs. Oh, like jumpers? I don't know what a jumper is. It's what directors wear in cartoons, you know, when they got that little switch that they're carrying around and the megaphone and the puffy hat. <laughs> okay. Are we watching different cartoons? Maybe. <laughs> okay. Maybe. A surprising number of the cartoons I watched as a kid seem pretty interested in taking pot shots at Cecil B. DeMille. <laughs> you gotta send me a picture, a picture of that later. I'd, I've been misunderstanding director attire all this time. Well, that's why your film career never took off, Corey. I guess so. You show up without a floppy hat and some jumpers, they're gonna ship your ass back to Poughkeepsie. But as for IQ's outfit, I just thought he was wearing jeans, but I thought it was a weird move that he seemed to have his windbreaker tucked into his jeans. We should get back to this later, though. We we have a whole category for it. Oh, I know. He's just, he's, he's weird looking, that's all. His legs. He is indeed. He's also just generally kind of a putz. And he was the only one that they caught at the end, and that's probably why. He also seemed to be the least of a threat of the people that they were trying to catch. And it makes it odder that they're as satisfied as they are with him being their sole arrest at the end. Hey, one out of three. Yeah, one out of three. The one who wasn't destroying priceless artwork or murdering people. I mean, if he succeeded previously in stealing the dinosaur from the Boston Museum of Science, then I understand prioritizing his arrest. Yeah. Also, this comes up a fair amount, but again, the Titans being skeptical about the existence of the supernatural when one of their members' dads is a demon just always sits weird. Yeah, I hear that. Ghost? (laughs) What? No way. I mean, by this point, the Titans being skeptical of the supernatural is kind of like if I all of a sudden started doubting the existence of cheese. Let's get back to Danny Chase for a minute. Why do you think he was levitating that enormous statue when we first see him in this issue? Uh, wasn't it Donna was looking for, like, clues or pieces of broken glass or something? Yeah, Donna's looking for clues, but when there's, like, an enormous, I'm gonna say probably three-ton statue sitting in the middle of the floor, you probably don't need to look under it for clues. Yeah, I think she was humoring him. He's like, hey, I'm helping. She's like, yeah, good job, buddy. It's like when you're playing hide-and-seek with, like, a little kid and you can see where they're hiding, so, like, as a goof, you, like, look under a piece of paper to see if they're under there. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's how Danny is trying to do a crime scene. There seemed to be a lot of handling him with kid gloves in this. I also did want to bring up, in his last appearance, I mentioned a couple of different people that he reminded me of. One of them was Cousin Oliver from the Brady Bunch, in that he's a new younger character who's introduced to boost ratings after the other characters are starting to age out of their roles. Mm -hmm. One of the other ones that I mentioned, just because he looked like him physically, was the kid Wiz from the beginning of Kid Video. Turns out those are the same guy. What? Yeah, the the actor who played Cousin Oliver also played Wiz in Kid Video. So there you go. 
yeah, that's why I got similar vibes off them. You know more than you think you know, my friend. Mm, and I think I know so much about important things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my only other note about Danny was, did he stuff a bunch of pepperoni between two cookies? Yeah, I thought it was carrot slices and like some like that bread that uh, torta sandwiches come on. Oh, okay, I can see that. Yeah, that would be a better sandwich, I think. Than a pepperoni cookie monstrosity. Ugh. Well, shit, Corey, was there anything else you want to bring up before we get into the minutiae? Oh, wait, there was something else. I'm going to scratch that and edit it out. Nope. <laughs> I'm cashing in all my Cory points. <laughs> oh, no. No, I'm just Somebody kidding. Somebody reminded saving. me recently about Cory points. Were you listening to old episodes? No, I was just like, how do I get up to <laughs> sound like a fool? Oh, <laughs> Cory points. Cory, you don't need to spend your Cory points on that. Well, to, to edit, not edit that part, those parts out. That's Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. You would need to spend your Cory points on that. And before you do that, you do need to cash them in and redeem them for hub dollars. That's not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're that's only... not what the contract says, my friend. Corey, the Corey points are only redeemable within the park. And we're recording remotely right now. I'm sorry. I don't make the rules. Oh, you bastard. What were you going to say? <laughs> I don't fucking know. <laughs> sorry. I did get a little bit confused at the beginning of the book with the three mansion robberies. It took me a reread, actually, to realize that those were three different mansions. Do you have any trouble with that? Wait, there was three? Yeah. I'm glad I wasn't the only one. I thought there was two. There was the, th the three musketeers place. There's the three musketeers place, which I didn't realize is a separate place from the toilet tycoon's place. What? Yeah. On the second page, that's a different place than on the first page. But because the first page, the security guard says, I hope I still have a job. Uh-huh. But before that, the caption says, until now, his cameras sweep the room, barely noticing the strange silver fog, the canvas, that new painting, the one old man Heatherstrom paid. What was it now? One million dollars for? Gone. So that is old man Heatherstrom's place. And then on the next page, we meet the toilet tycoon, Abner Gilly, uh -huh. who changed his name to Theodore M. Ford, and then ran errands for Al Capone before starting to clean toilets and amassing his fortune. <laughs> That's a different guy wow. in a different house, and he's being robbed by the gentleman ghost, whereas the first guy was robbed by the silver fog. Oh, and then the third guy was robbed by IQ? Presumably, and I was also confused by trying to figure out what kind of a job he had, because it talks about the high ratings for his morning show, mm -hmm. and so I assumed he was a radio DJ who was apparently very, very good at his job, because that is a palatial estate he lives in, and then he was watching the videotapes of last night's show. Mm-hmm. But then it always describes it as a morning show that he had. But by all the descriptions of what's happening in it, it seems like a late night style talk show that I guess airs in the morning. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, he's proud that his very successful late night talk show that airs in the morning is beating out reruns of Father Knows Best for five years in a row, which I mean, 
of course it would. <laughs> it's it's a new show. Father knows best. That at that point had been off the air for like thirty years, right? I had, yeah, I don't know the chronology, but it struck me as weird too. And also, it is a super fancy estate. Yeah. So I guess it's a very successful late night talk show that airs in the morning and has a band leader. Because when he talks about there being like a band leader and stuff, until he got to that part, I was like, oh, so like, is it like a Good Morning America type show? No, he's he's got his own. What's that guy's name? Paul Schaefer. Paul Schaefer, Doc Severinsen, Brant. Was it Winton or, or Brantford Marsalis? Which one uh, was Jay Leno's guy? I am not sure which which Marsalis that was. It was a Marsalis for sure, though. Yep. Uh, no, he's got a Cap Caps Orchestra, right? Yeah, which I think is supposed to be like Doc, like Doc Severinsen. Ah. But I was trying to figure out what kind of what the fuck kind of show this guy was running, and I was unable to decipher these context clues. I guess I'm not the detective that Dick Grayson is. No, no, he he got this all sorted out. If by all sorted out, you mean he was completely wrong about it the entire time, and then at the very end says, I got the feeling I might be wrong about this. Yeah, let's go get some pizza. I, yeah. I loved it. I loved seeing Dick that laid back. It was, it was a fun change. It was. I, I liked how he set this whole plan in motion based on the assumption, and one of the first things he says is, we can assume that all three of these crimes are connected. Turns out he shouldn't have assumed that. And at the very end of the book, while they're waiting for the three crooks to show up, he's like, I know I was so convinced and told all of you that, yes, of course, these are all connected. But now, I don't know, I'm getting a weird feeling. And Wonder Girl, when it turns out his weird feeling is right, it's like, that's amazing. You were totally right. It's like, well, first you said you were right, and then you said you might not be. So at that point, of course you're right. Either way, you're right. Mm, that is clever. It really is. And I guess that's what great detectives who are trained by Batman do. So help me out with the uh, the title of the issue. Or I don't know if it's like a subtitle, the one that's at the where chapter one starts. Round holes and square pegs. Because they're trying to make the clues that they have fit the assumption that they made earlier. But they don't. Because it's all coincidence. Oh, I got it. I got it. All right. I mean, it's also possible that it was just Marv Wolfman happened to be watching the TV show Square Pegs at the time, hmm. starring a young Sarah Jessica Parker. I don't know that one. I don't really know it either. I've never seen the show, but I have read the Mad Magazine parody of it. And let me tell you, they really took that show down a peg. A square peg, that is. Well, Corey, are you ready to get into the minutiae? Let me check my notes. Yes. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutiae. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutiae. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutiae. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what do you feel like starting off with today? Let's talk about clothes. Okay, sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion would you like to focus on? Let's talk about all the bad guys. All right. And I think those are the ones that I had thoughts on as well. Let's 
hit them up in the order that they start robbing shit in. Silver Fog. All right. Dang, how do you describe that? He's got super duper tight bodysuit that's silver. Mm-hmm. And a pair of like undies on the outside superhero style, but that have how would you describe that? Like 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 a a pupa a pupa? Oh, oh, like a thorax. Like a segmented thorax. Yeah, of like a grub. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wrapped around his junk. Or I've I've seen samurai armor like that too. What? Yeah, not over the junk, like over the chest. Huh. Okay, so he's got samurai thorax armor <laughs> over his junk. He's got pretty sweet cape, I guess. Uh... It's it's a it's a decent cape. He's got a fin on his head, mm-hmm. like Doctor Light, kind of, and he's got those mischievous Squirtle New Wave sunglasses, kind of. Yeah, yep. I was gonna say not quite punk rock sunglasses. Mm-hmm. I guess that's it. Yeah, and he's just kind of intangible. As I said, he was a hero that was created for an attempted reboot of Dial H for Hero in the early 80s. I think the Titans describe him as having been a Titans villain that they've clashed with before, but they haven't. That was Beast Boy, though, right? He's like, oh, I've kicked this guy's ass. <laughs> yeah, I think so. No, his one appearance was in that Hero for Hire book. There was a Teen Titans connection in that comic, because I actually read that this afternoon, but that connection was the kids that were doing the Dial H for Hero thing, which is they have a magic dial that is like a rotary telephone, and when you dial H-E-R-O, then you turn into a random new superhero each time. Dang. Does it ever go badly? Ah, I think it goes varying degrees of okay, usually. I haven't read a ton of Dial H for Hero. The twist on the reboot that they did was that all of the heroes that they turned into were submitted by readers, which was kind of fun, but also seems like a legal nightmare. But the the kids who have access to the H Dial, they have an an asshole teacher who confiscates their issue of New Teen Titans number one, which uh, they were going to read. Ugh. And so maybe Beast Boy somehow got that conflated with a memory that's like, oh, yeah, no, the Titans were involved in that adventure. So probably I was there and did great. Yep. (laughs) Sounds like him. We already talked a fair amount about the Gentleman Ghost, but damn, I love his getup. Yeah, it is dapper as fuck. Yeah, he's just a, a monochrome white fop. Who is invisible, but has a floating monocle on top hat and big old Dracula cape over a tuxedo and carries a little cane with him that he can shoot shit out of. It's great. Yeah, he's got the white gloves. He's got the ruffly cravat. He's got those, I don't know what you call them, like little cloth garters that go over the side of your boots. Let me take a look at those. I missed them. That's not on the, like, the first page where he's running around. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Spats. Spats. I think those are spats, Corey. Huh. That's funny. That's what they call grappling tights. Oh, I didn't know that. Have you had to wear grappling tights? I have done so by choice. <laughs> like just for a night on the town? I uh, know, just to keep the sweat and the mat burn off of your body. Fair enough. Like other people's. But they call those spats? Uh-huh. You're not thinking of spanks, are you? Well, they do make your ass look pretty good. (laughs) Glad to hear it. 
moving on, IQ. We have discussed him some as well. You had some thoughts on his, I guess, outer hips? Yeah, did that not strike you as funny? I honestly didn't notice. I thought it was perhaps a byproduct of the fact that he appears to be tucking a pretty rad purple windbreaker into his pants. And I was like, oh, man, that seems like like that looks kind of cool. But what a goofy thing to do. No, no, it's really pronounced. It's like if you had a pair of spats, the new kind, not the (laughs) old kind, that were blue (laughs) with pockets and you stuffed a tennis ball in each pocket. Like they're, it's really sticking out. It re, you're, you're totally right. I just hadn't noticed it at first. Yeah, I think he's wearing jumpers. That's what I'm gonna say. And that's those uh, director slash jockey pants. Yes. Okay. He also has some distinctive sunglasses, which are functional as well as stylish. They look kind of like Plastic Man style glasses in that they have white frames, but instead of being made of plastic, they are made of technology. Like they've got little. I don't know what to call it other than, like, technology. They got circuits and shit running around the glasses. And they, unlike any other form of eyewear or head covering that we've ever seen before, can keep Jericho out of his brain, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're Joey-proof quartz. Mm-hmm. He's also got a, uh, he's got an ascot. Yeah, he does. It's the kind that seems like it should have a tie pin in it. His outfit is actually not that dissimilar to Wonder Man's that we saw a couple issues ago. Different colors and uh, different pants, but same like jacket, ascot, sunglasses look. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he's got the whole shooting match tucked into a tight belt. Mm-hmm. And not tight like how the kids say it. Just like, it looks really cinched. Maybe both. He also has like white action gloves, kind of. Like, uh-huh. seems like it could be, like, farmhand-style gloves if you were, like, a real fancy farmhand. Oh, like a aristocratic cowboy. Yeah, you know, one of those. Mm-hmm. Like, you're putting up your gold-plated barbed wire. Yeah, with a British accent. Oh, absolutely. Mm, yes, I reckon. <laughs> ah, that's just going Steve. Yeah, no, that's Doctor Strange. I should have realized this a long time ago, and I'm sure listeners can confirm this, but, uh... I, I just realized I can't do a British accent. <laughs> Probably should have been a better clue for me the many times I've tried and failed, but, uh, eh. Corey, every issue of a new Teen Titans comic has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who did you have as your Aqualad And who did you have as your Beast Boy? For my Aqualad in this issue, I had Dick. He listened to Danny's plan, and he was nice. And, I don't know, I felt like he was kind of breaking the cycle of Dickish mentoring Mm. (laughs) that he endured. And so good on him for that. Also, very well played with the, I'm totally right, but I might be wrong, therefore I'm totally right. (laughs) He really trusted his gut about things not adding up. Yeah. And then played it off cool when they did a mediocre job. It's like, hey, guys, one out of three. Yeah. It's like his new catchphrase is always bet on black and red. And then everyone acts like, wow, it's amazing. You always win. That's right. How does he do that? For mine, my my notes say this. Danny? Shit. It's Danny. 
Yeah, yeah, he was uh, pretty effective, other than getting dick shot. But I mean, not shot in the dick, but getting Dick Grayson shot. Yeah, honestly, I am forced to admit that he did a very good job in his first outing in a way that makes me like him less as a character. Just that the hyper competence on his first time out, I think if they had built in a little bit more insecurity or some more intentional flaws into the character, I think he would be more interesting. But nope, it's his first time out with the Titans. He solves the crime and comes up with the plan. And yes, Dick listens to him, but he kind of figures it all out and comes up with the trap and then has the brilliant idea to let them fight each other and holds his own against a villain that's kind of beating up Dick Grayson. He objectively did a very good job, even taking into account the fact that he ate a sandwich that was two cookies with pepperoni stuffed into them. Yeah, and I I want to retract my earlier comment that that might work. I've been thinking about it since I said that. (laughs) That is not a good sandwich, Corey. No, I was never thinking it'd be a good sandwich. I was just thinking there are some combinations of sweet and savory that hadn't occurred to me before as being good. Yeah, I will grant you that. I do not think you can have a dessert pepperoni. No, I don't think it really works with meat. I think it's like more like a sharp cheddar on apple pie or whatever. It can work with some meats, I think. Like uh, bacon has been successfully incorporated into a number of desserts. That's a good point. Maybe just bacon, though. Yeah, not pepperoni. Conversely, who did you have as your Beast Boy? Eating a cookie and pepperoni. No, just kidding. I had Beast Boy. It was my Beast Boy. He Hmm. mostly complained and was largely ineffective and almost got squished by a whale. That's true. He did turn into a really cool-looking octopus, though. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot to bring that up in the the initial part that uh, each of the kind of chapters of this book were brought in by the different characters holding little chapter cards, and uh, Beast Boy made a pretty dope octopus. He did. It was another move that, even within this book, kind of lowers the stakes, I feel like, that that nod to the metafiction of it. I, I thought it was cute, but it also really does let you know this isn't a serious issue, you know? Mm -hmm. But yeah, he turned into a cute octopus. He also turned into a swordfish in the air, which just seemed like an odd choice. I mean, yeah, I guess if you want to stab a guy in the stomach, then after you jump turning into a swordfish, you could do, but you could also just be a rhinoceros, you know? It, It seems like you should turn into a creature that can breathe the environment that you are fighting in. Or like a giant shrike. Ooh, sure. Well, I guess he can't change the size of the animal it has to be as it occurs in nature. Ah, I don't know. I feel like he's turned into a bird that was carrying cyborg around. Like, I can't think of a bird that could do that, can you? No, just fictional ones. Yeah, I'd prefer not to think of a bird that can do that. But in terms of animals that actually exist, I feel like he maybe can fuck with their size. I don't know. All right. So you didn't have Beast Boy? I did not have Beast Boy. I had Cyborg. Overall, I think he did an okay job, but he was the main perpetrator of the there's no such thing as ghosts narrative. Yeah, that was weird. But 
really the reason I chose Cyborg is for one very specific reason and one very specific turn of phrase that he uses. At the end of the book, when Danny's like, let's just let them fight each other, Cyborg is like, I like the way this kid thinks. And Nightwing agrees that that's a great plan. Nobody seems to bother with the fact that there's also a bunch of security guards that they are letting just get the shit beat out of them by three murderous villains. But Man. that's not the reason that I chose Cyborg, though. The reason that I chose Cyborg is for him using the phrase, better watch yourself, Logan. This kid's a comer. <laughs> yeah. You don't say that about a teenager who has just moved into the building with you. <laughs> is that even a thing people... Is it, like, short for up-and-comer, but, like, I've never heard that said. I have never heard it said either. I think it did used to be a phrase. I can confirm it is a phrase you probably don't want to do a Google search of, but it really did just convey the idea that, like, Oh, I guess Cyborg's been washing the sheets lately. <laughs> I mean, come on, it's a natural part of growing up. You don't need to shame the kid in front of all the other teenagers he just moved in with. Oh. I mean, just don't don't call the kid out like that. I'm not a huge Danny Chase fan either, but he is this issue's Aqualad. Don't fucking put that out in front of everybody. Oh, that's funny. Danny, I know this is a weird time for you, but... Time to do your own laundry, pal. Exactly. But that is a conversation that you have with Danny Chase in private. You don't put out on Front Street in front of the rest of the Titans, look out, this kid's a comer. Yeah, that's, that's not cool. Okay, fair enough. So, Cyborg is my beast boy. Oh, unusual. Corey, who did you have as the president of the drama club this issue? Which character acted, or rather overacted, in the most dramatic fashion? I gotta also give this one to Beast Boy for his jealousy of Danny, uh, particularly on page 21, where his speech bubble, when he says grr for like the third time, is literally like dripping with disdain. I had the same choice not only for that, but for the expressions he is making on his face on page five when he is chatting with Danny. First, the look he has of complete performative smugness when he says don't worry kid i'll show you the ropes and then the look of surprise on his face when dick grayson says good idea to something that danny said it is just so over the top mm -hmm. um from the look on his face and on cyborg's face it looks like cyborg could be thinking of logan look out this kid's a comer <laughs> <laughs> that's if cyborg had a word bubble hmm anyway that kind of expression is enough to earn you the title president of the drama club that is fair i think it's time for a battle of the band names and Corey, this week we have a new champion what it's been quite a run for the Writhing Obscenities, but their roller coaster ride of success finally turned into a roller coaster and not just a steady incline. They were defeated by the gods of science Damn. in a fairly decisive victory. So, this week we have to figure out who we are putting up against the bombastic indie rock of the gods of science. 
Were you able to find any good uh, band names in this issue? This one was uh, was a little bit harder, but I had a couple options. Uh, the first one turned out it was actually a, a band, so oh, no clowns. Oh. Anyway, I had two other choices. I don't know which one is my favorite, but the first one I submit is Gentleman Ghost. Hmm. Not bad. Yeah, I think they probably play some kind of... I'm trying to think of a band that's not Mumford and Sons that sounds like that. <laughs> but I can't. Yeah. You know what I mean? That kind of music, though? Like, old-timey, but so aware that it's old-timey. It's... I don't know. Like, intentionally twee? Yeah. Um, you know, the one that's coming to mind is Edwin Case and the Magnetic Zeros. I think they got a touch of that. This, though, because they got Ghost in the Word, it's, got a, it's a little more... Like, they want to cast themselves as Nick Cave as an influence or something? I don't know. Ooh, like a twee Nick Cave? Yeah. <laughs> wow. With old-timey instrumentation. Oh, wow. Old-timey twee Nick Cave. That is a hell of a sound. It can't be done. I would have trouble doing it, but, you know, good luck to these gentlemen ghosts. I had a few. A couple are along similar lines. One is a, I'm going to see, aggressive gangsta funk band called Smoke, Noise, and Robbery. <laughs> oh, man. Oh. It's like Earth, Wind, and Fire, but tougher. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm sure the late, great Nate Dogg would have would have been a guest on, on some of their stuff. Oh, absolutely. Another entry that I had that is kind of along similar lines was Brothers in Crime. Huh. I see I, I missed that. It is a way that Gentleman Ghost addresses the rest of his cohort. Mm. And that one, I think, is okay. I don't really know what type of music they would play. What do you think Brothers in Crime would do? Because I can actually see them being kind of like an old-timey type band, too. It could go totally either way. They could be a definite, like, old-timey band, or they could be, like, they make the music that is on when they're announcing... The fighters at UFC events. Okay. Yeah, I, I can see either of those. I can also see them being like a Builders and the Butchers type band, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of versatility in that name, I feel like. What was your other option? My other option is the name of a song, but, uh, but not the name of a band, and that's Sonic Disruption. Okay, well, I guess that is our choice because I had that as well. Oh, shit. I wasn't familiar with the song. What? Who's the song by? That's a Dandy Warhol song. Oh, man. I accidentally went to a Dandy Warhol's concert one time. Oh, was it not good? I enjoy some of their songs. Um, it was at a time when they were at the height of their popularity nationally. And for some reason, that caused a backlash in Portland because Portland is Portland. So I saw a band called the Lucky 13s open for them. Uh, the Lucky 13s was kind of a local punk supergroup that only played shows on Friday the 13th. And they put on an amazing show. And then the Dandy Warhols went on after them, and most of the crowd left at that point. And uh, I was among them. Oh, jeez. That's, that's so Portlandy. <laughs> oh, it totally was. Harsh. But I also had Sonic Disruption as my choice so uh i guess they are our band i just think they're a classic punk band yeah i i had like a, a, a you know 
definitely rock, but I think the reason I think they sound like the Dodsons is because they had a song with the word Sonic and Sonic Re- Reducer. Sonic Reducer, yeah. Yeah. Wait, who is that? I thought that was the Dotsons. Maybe that's a cover of like a Dead Boys song or something. Yeah, I think it is. I don't know who the Dotsons are. <laughs> they, they had a song that sounded like another song. Oh, Sonic Reducer is a Dead Boys song, Yeah, right? I'm pretty sure. That's probably where I'm getting that from. Uh, I see them being more kind of like the weirdos, though. Mm. You know, they did that song, We've Got the Neutron Bomb. But either way, I think it's a solid band name. And interestingly, seeing as it is the name of a song but not a band, I hadn't realized Gods of Science is also the name of a song but not a band. And by one of my favorite artists, it's actually a song by The Coup. What? Yeah, it's on the album. Sorry to Bother You, that came out about eight years before the movie Sorry to Bother You, so it's not on the soundtrack Ah. of Sorry to Bother You, but it's on the concept album that the movie was kind of based on, which is an amazing album. That is a fucked up movie, and not in a bad way, but it's dang. Yeah, it's a great movie, it's a great album, and it's one of my favorite groups. Props to Boots Riley all day. Mm Mm-hmm. Corey, let's take this party to the Bozone. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, do you want to talk about? Well, you already called <laughs> called out one, which is Borgie calling out <laughs> Danny Chase for... For just being a teenager, it's perfectly natural. You don't need to shame him in front of the rest of the Titans. Yeah, so, so I'm not going to glorify that with a serious nomination but i did have it i guess that leaves me with clowns i had the same one uh not a ton of insults i think there is the oft used rust head i think mm-hmm. there's a wing boy called cyborg that yeah wings which isn't really an insult that's oh, kind of cute yeah so yeah you are left with i believe it is the silver fog calling his two brothers in crime clowns yep fair enough clowns it is Corey, were you able to find a timestamp in this issue? I, I had a couple. I also had some show and tells. Oh. I don't know if we got rid of that officially, or if it's still a hybrid category. Yeah, I'll allow it. All right. It's going to cost you some Corey points, though. Uh-uh. Nope. I'm sorry. I am saving those up for editing veto choices. Okay, okay. In fact, if you want to hear my show and tell, it is going to cost you 100. 100 Corey points. Mm-hmm. Hmm. All right. You know what? I do want to hear those. So uh, let's see. And for Let listeners find out who don't know what the book. hell we're talking about, you're going to have to go back about five years. To... Okay. 100 Corey points. Sounds like All you right. wrote that down. Yeah, I did. Nice. So I keep meticulous notes of this, Corey. Uh-huh. I would you like to know your total? Yeah. That's gonna cost you. <sighs> so all of Borgie's dialogue in the Museum of Natural History, and also all of IQ's dialogue are show and tell. Mm-hmm. Like they just really over narrate everything. Yeah, it was it was a little bit frustrating. <laughs> yep. Was there a particular excerpt of Cyborg's dialogue that you were thinking of? Mm-hmm. When all this glass explodes around him, 
he narrates it kind of in a way that reminded me of when we were on that walk one time and, and uh, for whatever reason, a bunch of sand got kicked up by the wind and you said, ah, oh, the sand, it hurts my eyes. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of has one of those moments, but it goes on for a while. He says, glass everywhere. Ah, getting past my metal parts, cutting through my chest and arms. Got to cover my face. Damn, getting everything. And I'm sure if you were there, you would have laughed just as hard at Cyborg as you did at me when I got sand in my eye. It's the way you said it was funny. I, I was sad that you were hurt after the fact. You were very sad once you stopped laughing. Well, come on. I'm only human. That's a great point, Corey. As we have mentioned numerous times, we are both human men from Earth. And as such, in the words of the Bard, if you prick us, do we not bleed? And then giggle a bunch at the use of the word prick. Mm -hmm. uh, as for timestamp, I had a couple of those as well. One I had was the computer screen font that got used when they're looking up the crime files of the Silver Fog. There's just a very distinctive type of computer screen font that for a long time was the only type you would see. And uh, it took me back seeing that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good example. I had a technological thing too, and it was in a um, really well-rendered panel on page 21. And it's the Titans where Dick's pacing around and everybody's hanging out where they're talking about the crime in the Titans Tower. And it's just really like, a, you know, George Perez style. Everything in the background is super detailed and technical looking. Mm -hmm. And in the upper left, there are what look like two reel-to-reel -reel tape, magnetic tape. Oh, yeah. Reels. And that, to me, seems like a very like late 70s, maybe early 80s thing. So almost, almost kind of a throwback. Yeah, totally. Having the reel-to-reel -reel be part of the ultra-high-tech setup you've, that you've got there. Uh-huh. I didn't notice that. I did notice, and I think the same scene with the super high-tech tower gear, there was a very large sign that said, please do not smoke in this area. And I can't say that they necessarily wouldn't have that. I feel like you wouldn't have to have that sign these days near mm -hmm. the high-tech equipment or really anywhere inside. It's just kind of assumed more. But I feel like if you did have it, it would probably be a bit more brusque. No smoking. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that weird? That, that's like, speaking of timestamps, man, that's like one of the, the big ones in our lifetime. That What a radical change. Mm-hmm. I was working as a bartender when it became illegal to smoke inside of bars here, and just what a huge change that was. Oh, man, I bet that was amazing. It was really weird. People were mad. They really were. Yeah, that must have been fun as a bartender. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah, I think that was only like 2009. One of the things about the change that I really hadn't anticipated was the amount of money the bar took in in video poker plummeted so hard because people would have to break out of the little like gambling hypnosis that they were in to go outside to smoke a cigarette to, to feed their other addiction. And in the time that it took them to look up, they would realize, oh, fuck, I shouldn't be doing this. And they would just leave instead of continuing to feed money into the machine. Like, it, it's weird the extent to which that happened immediately. Wow. Yeah. No, I can totally see that. I remember basically chain smoking and feeding all my tip dollars into the <laughs> stupid fucking machine. Yeah. 
honestly, I think that whole thing is kind of an apt metaphor for what's happening with the service industry in general right now. Like, you hear about all of these bars and restaurants having difficulty filling service positions. And I think during the pandemic, a lot of service workers were forced to stop doing what they have been because bars were closed. And that metaphoric cigarette break of being forced to stop what they were doing made them realize, oh, this is not really healthy or sustainable. Were there any other timestamps you found? I had one just from the very ending where they talk about renting a videotape or two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had the same. Celebrate by renting a video. Yeah, been a while since that's been a thing. Yep. And it really wasn't that, in retrospect, wasn't that long a period that it was a thing, that it would be specific videos. It was throughout the 80s, really, and very beginning part of the 90s before it switched over to being DVDs. Mm-hmm. Well, you know the Titan Towers would have had the Laserdisc, though. Oh, totally. But, you know, I guess they just like the uh, the warmer tone of the VHS tape. Because <laughs> they're renting videos. Uh, hipster Titans. They probably have a Betamax machine. Oh, you know there's a Betamax in there. Yeah, Nightwing definitely has practiced his speech about how it has more lines of resolution. What was your favorite panel? Despite me giving Cyborg a little trouble about it, the glass storm on page 15 was just incredibly well rendered. Mm -hmm. It was a beautiful issue. I mean, there isn't too much more to say about it. We've seen Eduardo Barreto and Romeo Tangal work together a bunch, and they really always do great work. Barreto's layouts are really imaginative, and Tangal's inks are super tight, and they make some great-looking images. I had trouble narrowing it down. I think my favorite I call... Foppish ghost and dino skulls on Mm. page 11. Mm -hmm. It's when you first see the gentleman ghost and he is flanked by dinosaur skeletons. And I just was thinking, man, that must have been so much fun to draw. Yeah, that was a good one for sure. Another option I had, we've talked about it a fair amount, but I called it Techno Tower. And it's that whole page really where the Titans are walking through the tower. There are a lot of inset panels into other panels. And just a lot of love was put into the high-tech nonsense that is lining the walls of the building. Is that the one on page 16? Yeah. Yeah, I had the same one, actually. Again, it was like one of these kind of channeling Perez things. There was Mm -hmm. so much detail in all the widgets. Super cool. Yeah, I really dug that. All of the weird little technological curly cues ended up making like a really pretty mosaic too mm-hmm. it was really well done i wanted to call out that cute looking octopus that is a uh, beast boy acting as kind of the i don't know the ring girl sort of like you would see mm-hmm. in a boxing match holding up the signs that say round two of him as an octopus holding up the sign that says chapter two uh it was just a really nicely drawn octopus i dug that and uh The close-up of the dying toilet tycoon. I just really liked the way they drew the overly backstoried. He doesn't just get a full name. He gets two full names, so he's definitely going to (laughs) die. Theodore M. Ford, Nee Abner Gilly. Is it pronounced Nee, the N-E-E, or is it Nay? I always said Nay, but I haven't heard anybody say it, so I, I don't know. Yeah, I've only seen it written. But... The close-up of his face as he is getting shot with an old-timey 
single shot pistol by the gentleman ghost. He gets shot right through the book that he is reading, and there's blood on the book jacket. He's got a cool old man face, and it's drawn really well. Yeah, and I, I love that the book he's grasping just says mystery on the spine. Yep, a little bit on the nose, but hey, I like it. Yeah. Well, Corey, there is one further question I've got to ask you, and that is, Wapoot! What is Aqualad probably up to in the year of our Lord, 1989, and the month of our Lord, May? Mm. Aqualad is celebrating victories of two good friends of his who both on the 23rd of May had some good news come their way. First of all, Aqualad, big fan of comedy, and he was really pleased that his friend and one of his favorite comedians on May 23rd was nominated and won the third American Comedy Award, and that's Paula Poundstone. Oh, yeah. I used to dress like her when I was in eighth grade. (laughs) I remember that. Very, very sassy. Also, on that same day, if you could believe it, Angela Visser, then 22 years of age, from Holland, was crowned the uh, 38th Miss Universe. And Aqualad, of course, knew her from all his time helping out his Dutch friends with all the water that they've got there. Uh, you know, fed by the Rhine, the, the Maas, and the Scheldt, uh, the Dutch waterways, uh, pretty complicated. Bunch of channels, mm. uh, rivers, and seas, all kinds of stuff. And wouldn't you know it, these two events, these two wins from his friends on the 23rd of May, 1989, led to some things that would happen a few years later for each of them. Former Miss Universe went on to star in the amazing Killer Tomatoes Eat France in 1991. With young George Clooney, if memory serves. Yeah, it's uh, the the fourth and most recent (laughs) sequel to Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, as everybody knows. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Clooney was in Return of the Killer Tomatoes. That's my bad. Oh, that must have been the one. Two before, I guess. Two before. Yeah, okay. Who can keep track of these masterpieces? <laughs> Whereas Paula Poundstone, in that same year, 1991, wound up in a Canadian documentary, Wisecracks, by Gail Singer, profiling a, a number of women who were active in comedy in the 80s and 90s. So May 23rd, 1989, good month for a couple of Aqualad's buddies, and he was happy to raise a glass in their honor. Excellent work, Aqualad. Excellent work, Dutch lady whose name I do not recall. And of course, excellent work. Funny woman, vest aficionado, Paula Poundstone. My style icon for a couple of years in my early teens. Yep. That was some of what Aqualad was up to, but it wasn't all that he was up to. Although, the rest of what he was up to did influence the comedy world. Hmm. See, Aqualad had a couple of days to kill in New York, so he wanted to hang out with an old friend, and a new friend. Whenever he's in New York, he calls up the Titan Tower and sees who's hanging around. And who was hanging around that day was Wonder Girl. And she was hanging out with her new friend, who she had met in a recent Infinity Inc. team-up that fucking sucked, uh, (laughs) Wildcat, Yolanda Montez. And so Yolanda and Donna are hanging out, and Aqualad calls up, and he's like, hey, do you guys want to go to a movie? And they're like, sure, that sounds like fun. And so on May 19th, Aqualad, Wildcat, and Wonder Girl 
went and saw the premiere of Roadhouse, <laughs> starring Patrick Swayze. And boy, did they love it. I mean, you've seen Roadhouse? How could you not love Roadhouse? And so they did. As they were leaving the theater, Aqualad was just like, man, that was so good. Did you guys like it? That was rad, right? And Wonder Girl's like, yeah, man, I got to tell you, whenever Sam Elliott was on the screen, I was just mesmerized. And Aqualad heard that and he was like, oh, no, a mesmerized Donna Troy. Wildcat, here, here are the keys to my car. You have to get out of here right now before she strangles you. Whenever Wonder Girl gets hypnotized, she tries to murder a cat. You need to leave right now. And Wonder Girl's like, no, no, no. It's just, it's a figure of speech. It's fine. I'm not really mesmerized. I just think that uh, Sam Elliott is a very attractive older man. And so Aqualad was like, Phew. okay, okay. And uh, Yolanda Montez is like, I appreciate your concern, Aqualad, but you don't want me driving your car. I'm a terrible driver. And that was really the end of that. Except this conversation was overheard by a Saturday Night Live writer named Jack Handy, who happened to be walking by and was struggling with what he was going to write a sketch about for tomorrow's show. Well, when he heard a cat that can drive a car, but not very well... He knew what he had to write. And that is why the very next night, Saturday Night Live debuted a character called Toonses, the driving cat, the cat who could drive a car, but not very well. And that is what Aqualad was probably up to in May of 1989. Nice work, sir. Thank you. I rewatched the first Toonses video. It holds up pretty goddamn well. Oh, man, I remember that stuff uh, cracking me up big time. It is so dumb, and I had forgotten that it's a live-action cat when they do the intro of it, and just really does look like that cat's driving a car, and honestly, that still is a goddamn delight. Yep. And Corey, thank you so much for joining us as we talked about this fine comic book. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh-huh. Is that how you would describe it? That's fine. Yeah. We will be back next week to talk about the conclusion, I believe, of the Six-Fingered Hand saga in The Defenders. I do also want to point out, uh, just this last week, David Anthony Kraft died, the author of many of The Defenders stories that we covered. Damn. And uh, sorry to see him go. Rest in peace. Yeah. I didn't love all of what he did with The Defenders, but... It was always interesting, and uh, I really appreciate the contribution that he made to a medium that I love a lot, and uh, very sad to see that he passed. Mm. Anyway, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so by reaching us at ttwasteland at gmail.com, or if you would like to write us a letter, like our old pal the Gentleman Ghost would, because uh, you know, it's an old-timey thing to write a letter, but something that I always appreciate. We can be reached at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. We're also up in some places on the socials media. Your Twitters, your Tumblr, your Facebooks, etc., etc. So, you know, if you feel like uh, seeking us out there, you can probably find us. I posted a picture of that uh, capybara youth pastor taking his human out to shit on his lawn. Mm -hmm. the other day i saw that 
It's a good picture. Mm-hmm. So if you want to see that or, you know, participate in the Battle of the Band Name polls, you can seek us out on Twitter. That's where those take place. And uh, hey, if you can't find us there, there is one more place you can look. And that's deep inside your heart. We'll be there. We always have been there. This week, I'll be trying to trick Corey into eating two cookies that have pepperoni in between them. I'm going to tell him it's a torta. Corey, what are you going to be doing in there? You know what you might enjoy doing inside people's hearts this week, Corey? I don't know. Stage whispering bad pranks? Uh, eating a torta. Uh, you like tortas, don't you? They are one of the best sandwiches. Yeah, so uh, maybe you'll have a, maybe you'll have a torta while you're in there. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I'll make you some cookies. Oh. Corey, I don't want my comeuppance. <laughs> Nobody does, friend. Hmm. Uh, but what I do want is your money. (laughs) (laughs) So if you would like to support the show financially, you can do so by checking us out at patreon.com slash DT Wasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There is the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. There should be an episode of that that goes up i think before this episode goes up and there's also a whole bunch of bonus videos that i've made that are reviews of classic comic books i actually did one a while ago about the first appearance of iq it was in a i believe mystery in space issue from the early 60s and uh had a lot of fun reading that so if you do become a patron then you get access to all of that bonus material and uh, honestly, it's just, uh, it's been wonderful, the support that I have gotten from people, and I really, really appreciate it. Over this last year, it has helped keep me afloat, and I really appreciate that. If you would like to support the show in a non-financial way, what are some ways people can do that, Corey? I think the first thing they could do is just tell people that they like it, people that mm-hmm. might want to give it a listen themselves. I think that's a great idea. Is there a way maybe they could hide the podcast between two cookies? And get people to just try it that way. Not that I am aware of. No. I think really the only way you could do that is like you'd end up having people eat your phone. You don't want people to eat your phone. That's probably poisonous and also very expensive. Mm -hmm. Although, have you seen those iPhone commercials that have the song The Candyman in them? And it has them like dipping the phone in purple goo to make it purple? Uh-uh. It's confusing because they play that song, The Candyman, as they do that. And it makes me think either rich people are so goddamn rich they're eating iPhone 12s. The other thing that's confusing about using the Candyman song is that it makes me think that if you say iPhone three times in the mirror, it's going to show up behind you and murder you. Oh, I thought you meant Candyman like like William Hurt, like the old-timey guitar music. No, no, no. The, the Candyman song they're using is the one that's, uh, The Candyman can. Oh. And a man can, cause he mixes it with love and makes the world taste good. Uh-huh. What were we talking about? Uh, tricking people into eating our podcast because you stuffed it between two cookies. As a prank. Alright. Corey. Yeah, guys, don't do that. Yeah, Thank I'm you. gonna have to take away some Corey points for that, though. Yeah. Oh. Sorry. So, another way people could help <laughs> is by leaving a review. Corey. Uh-huh. You just got those points back. That's amazing. You can leave a review in uh, any place you get a podcast. You can 
probably leave a review in places you don't get podcasts. That might be fun. Yeah. Why not try it? Mm-hmm. Who's it going to hurt? Yeah. Hopefully the man. Huh? Uh-huh. You know what the man hates? Reviews. Us getting positive reviews. Oh, right. Yeah, he, he can't stand it. Oh, it makes him so mad. He's all like, Are you kids? I'm, I wanted to oppress people. Uh-huh. But now Titan of the Defense is getting positive reviews. Oh, I'm so mad. That's what the man's like when you leave us a positive review. Yep. So if you like that, please do. Yeah. I hate that guy. He's the worst. Yeah. Okay, bye. Bye. And they know it. Not very well. He drives around all over the town. Toots is the driving cat. And until next week, look out. This kid's a cover. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try a different one. <laughs> all right. <laughs> and until next week, look out. This kid's a cover. <laughs>